Hello everyone and welcome to Geekoscopy 101, the podcast that explores the intersection between science, story and play with me, your host Dr. Janus Kisten. And today we're exploring the advent of computing with podcaster Sean Haas. Welcome to the show, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm also doing pretty well. Excited to, to chat to you. I was telling you earlier about how in an alternate universe I could be doing uh, computer engineering, at least computer science. Um, so when I discovered your your podcast, I, I'm like living vicariously <laughs> through you. Uh, oh, that's good while to hear. Listening. Always down to help people live vicariously in the digital world. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, definitely. So why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and, and what you do, Sean? Yeah, so professionally, I'm a software engineer, which is a pretty boring sounding field. I think it's fun. I've always liked computers. Um, as a hobby, though, I, I guess maybe it's more than a hobby at this point. As a let's call it an unofficial job, I produce a podcast called Advent of Computing that covers the history of computers and broadly computing adjacent technology. Because as it turns out, there's a lot of stuff that's not 100% computers that does really impact the history of digital machines. Hmm, sure, definitely. How did you get started with with uh, computers? Where did the spark in your life inspire you to go down this path? Well, I think like many practitioners, I was bit by the bug early. <laughs> My dad back in, uh, it was way before I was born, got a degree in computer information systems. And he never did anything with that. But because of that, he always had these old programming manuals and like textbooks that were kicking around the house. And I remember in middle school, I was really bored one summer as, as one is in middle school. So I was sitting around and I started going through some of his old books. And I, I was thinking like, you know, may, maybe these computers are, maybe there's a little bit more to them than just like playing solitaire and checking emails. And so I started to teach myself how to program. And ever since then, I've just been obsessed with ma the machines. They're, they're fascinating. And there's almost no limit to what you can do with them. Mm, sure, definitely. And how, when did you decide you're going to start podcasting about it? Because that's always a, a big step from doing yeah. this to, to podcasting, <laughs> creating content. That's a bit of a longer departure, I guess. So we were talking a little bit before we hopped on the call, but I am in an alternate reality. I would have been a career academic. So I did undergrad in astrophysics and my plan was to go to grad school, do the whole track and become a, a professor eventually. But once I got to the point of grad school and actually signing up and doing all the paperwork, I, I decided against it. Uh, just wasn't the lifestyle for me at that time. Hey, maybe one day I'll go back. Mm. Um, but throughout undergrad, I did a lot of research and gave a lot of presentations on research. And I really liked that science communication part of the field. Well, I remember one of my professors told me that you could be the smartest person in the world. And that's not really worth much if you can't explain what you're working on to people. Then you're just kind of stuck in your own mm. head. So I always, throughout my, my short, admittedly short academic career, tried to emphasize being able to give talks and lecture about my work. And 
that was something that once I was out of academics, I really missed. The, the other impetus that kind of helped is I've worked in the podcast industry for years. <laughs> I used to work at a smaller company that did some podcast hosting. I wrote back in stats software for that. And then more recently, I worked for a larger company that will remain unnamed um, doing the same thing. So I've been involved in podcasting mm -hmm. on like the industry side forever. So I got to a certain point after mm -hmm. deciding against grad school, where I was like, well, you know, I, I really wish I could keep doing research and I really wish I could keep sharing research with people. And I, I like to think that in an alternate universe, I was a career educator. So I was able to kind of put together my love of computing and my love of being able to do research and communicate science to make a podcast. Yeah, it was pretty cool. If you if you were, go, were to go back to, to academia, would you do it in astrophysics or would you try and get into computer science instead? I So at first, I've always thought that I would get a degree in comp sci, but surprisingly physics and especially astrophysics these days is really computational heavy so i think i'd probably just stick yeah. with astrophysics because it's a lot more applied than just doing computer science yeah for sure definitely how did you get into doing astrophysics it was so when i originally got into college it was kind of a split between either doing computer science or physics like i was saying and I ended up settling on physics because I wanted to feel like I was in a field that was more generally applicable than purely computer science. Also, the school I mm. went to had a better physics department than their comp sci department. Mm, so so. that kind of made it a no-brainer, I think. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I, I, it's one of those things, especially like if you're studying like locally or you want to go to a specific university, Sometimes you you just end up doing like what's what's best or like studying in a field yeah. that's already being studied at because just like there's just better infrastructure and better like manpower around it. Mm -hmm, um, exactly, and I sometimes sad because you don't always <laughs> <laughs> you don't always get to do what you want to do. Right, uh, I tried taking a... some comp sci classes at my alma mater and I just couldn't do it. They wouldn't let me test down. It's like, hey, guys, I know how to program. Let me leave. Just give me the degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so during your course of learning about uh, computers and programming, um, what were some of the like common misconceptions you've seen with people about understanding computers and, and how they work and what they do? It's a really good question. I think the biggest misconception I run into, especially with the podcast now and my historical context is a lot of people seem to think that most of the technology we use day to day is new, which isn't necessarily true. A lot of technology has actually really old roots, especially when it comes to computers, which is something that's oftentimes surprising to people. I think the most canonical example you can go with is the internet. Most of the core technology that went into the internet was designed in the 1950s, or in some cases, the theory work was even earlier. So for instance, ARPANET was the first 
attempt by the US government to make a network that was actually robust and wouldn't just fall apart at the tip of a hat. And that was based around the idea of having a distributed network that sent around chunks of data instead of whole like blobs. So on the internet, you don't download a whole MP3 file. It on the back end, very deep inside the network, sends around chunks of it that are reconstructed. And that turns out to be more reliable than sending just giant blobs of data. Um, other choices like doing binary instead of analog data or even using phone lines, which for decades we did use for the internet, that all dates back to the 50s. And all of those are like, th just those four technologies are still core to the modern day internet we're using in the 21st century. And a lot of people are like, oh yeah, the internet's so new. It came out in the nineties, but it's 50 years old. It's 60 years old um, by this point, but we're still using it because that's mm. the best we have. Mm, for sure. I think recently I was, I Googled, um, like when was the first computer, like the first computer to come out? And I was surprised to see that like some of the earliest dates were like, like 18, like the late, <laughs> like 18, yeah. like 79 or whatever. And I'm like, what? Like, that's, a, that's a totally different century to what I thought. It, it just seems that the idea for this stuff like started off early. It's just that it takes a while to get to like, like a commercial level and it takes even longer to get to like consumer level. But these things, the idea of them starts off really earlier than we think. Yeah, and it's not just, it's partly the ideas, but it's that humans have always had the same problems, right? Like someone working in a field has a different set of problems than someone working in an office, but at a certain point, it's like, oh, you still have to count like how many steps you're taking or how many bushels of grain versus how many cups of coffee you've had. There's all similar types of issues that people have been facing for ever. And computers or at least something like them have always been a need so really early systems like the machines that babbage was making in the 1800s those are solving the same kind of math equations that are being solved on modern day computers it's just using the technology that was available at the time so in the 1800s it might have been gears today it's silicon but still fundamentally it's just something that us humans really need Mm, for sure. I haven't fully gone through your whole catalog yet because most of it I don't understand. It's not being in the field. But do you do anything with like alternate history? Like what if we didn't, if certain people didn't discover certain things at certain times? Like would they have popped out like in other parts of the world? What's your favorite point in like computing history that could have like changed everything if it didn't happen? Oh, I've, so I've done one episode about that. I try to stay away mm. from alternative histories because yeah. I, I like to speculate and I, I get off off the train pretty quick, <laughs> but I did <laughs> one episode a while back. So I've been doing this long running series that ended last year on um, Intel processors leading up to the IBM PC, which comes out in 1981. Um, the, the reason I was doing a series on that is the PC was kind of a watershed moment since it was the first home computer that had widespread adoption. and part of that was people were able to clone it and make like $100 IBM PCs instead of $1,000 machines. And that just broke the floodgates open for everyone having a computer on their desk. 
So at the once I finished that series, I did an episode talking about an alternate future where IBM didn't use Intel hardware for the PC because that was one of the big things that made the PC clonable and possible to make cheaply is it used mm -hmm. IBM or IBM used Intel chips, which were cheap. They're not made by IBM. Anyone could go buy chips from Intel. But there was a point where IBM engineers were discussing, well, what should we use for this new computer? And they looked at using this one Texas Instruments chip that was a lot more capable than the Intel chip they ended up using. And so I did a whole episode that was going over that Texas Instruments chip and then presupposing, well, what if IBM had chosen that and then trying to sketch out what a computer might have looked like? Mm -hmm. that, that is really interesting. I, I love alternate history stuff. I find it really it's, interesting it's to speculate. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I should do more speculative episodes, but like <laughs> I was saying, I I tend to get too far off into fantastical thinking if I let myself yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You pull out the board with all like the strings. Yeah, and, here like, we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I've been hearing a lot, uh, I think mostly on social media, about um, everybody should apparently be learning how to code in some way or another because in the future, like, all the machines are going to steal our jobs, especially, like, the ones that don't, like, um, um, take a lot of, I don't know, human power, brain power or whatever. Uh, I forget the correct term for it. Like, what, what's your feeling about that as somebody who... who programs um, for your day job and, and uh, con creates content around computer. Is programming something we should be, everyone should be learning or is it fine if a lot of people don't know, or the majority don't know how to code? Now, I, I can give you a complicated answer. <laughs> a lot of my, so a lot of my friends are also programmers since that's just the circle I run in. And we always... Yeah joke after hours that programming too much does something bad to your head um i think there's <laughs> probably some kind of net detrimental effect after a certain amount of time but i think if you want a solid career path software development's pretty good you have a lot of options and if you tailor what you know properly you can work almost anywhere and i think that's a huge benefit of itself um, for me, I think, I personally think that programming languages are one of the most shining creations that humans have ever come up with because there's just decades and decades of people trying to figure out how we can interface with these computers that we've built because computers fundamentally, they're these inhuman monsters, right? Because they work off logic mm -hmm. and ones and zeros, which that's not how we work at all. So programming languages and broadly programming in general is, I think, a real triumph of the human spirit, if I can be a little hyperbolic. Mm. So I mm. I think it does good, does you a little bit of good to learn how to program. But on the flip side, there there are plenty of downsides to working in the industry. I know I wish mm. I could be outside more often. That's something that kills me especially mm. when it's nice out <laughs> yeah definitely uh, one, one of the things i don't think people realize about being a 
outside scientists like I'm supposed to be, you know, the, the majority of the time we are on our computers actually like sometimes doing programming, like using R to do statistical analyses, yeah. which I think is funny. Like I recently, I recently saw a meme about it um, and they were like, I wish I wish I went to like marine biology so I could spend most of my time like being outside. <laughs> and like there's one comment is like most of the public don't know what we do, do they? It's like no, it's <laughs> just not how it is. <laughs> oh, I like it. And that I guess that's that's another point about learning a program is it shows up in places that you just don't expect, right? Mm. Yeah, for sure. So, so R is definitely a language that scientists use mm-hmm. um, for statistical analysis, and I think some Python is starting to to creep in there. I did a workshop about it, which are this computational statistics side. Um, I'm not a fan of, of doing the whole coding yeah. thing. I I prefer having a point and click UI. Um, but if I have to do it, I'll I'll just do it. It's, I can do it. So like I'm like totally inept at it. Uh, but I just and I think I, that's that's a good level to be at. It's a tool at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a tool. I think it. Well, if you're gonna do something technological, I think having experience in some at some code um, that's mm-hmm. contextual to what you are doing makes makes sense. But I mean, like, if you a farmer out plowing the fields, it makes no no sense for you to not know any type of code. Yeah, um, cultivator and this more rich inner life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Enjoy <laughs> the sunshine. Enjoy the animals. Um, and also, like, don't you think that, like, with any kind of type of problem, like, like it took mankind's evolution a lot to get to a point where we could like communicate using like symbols and stuff you know and it's one of the things mm-hmm. that we use as a tool effectively to to you know broaden our horizons um but don't you think that when it comes to like programming and and development there's some like entrepreneur out there is going to find a way to just like make it easy so that you don't have to learn how to code um it will be something that's like drag and drop or point and click, and then it'll code for you. Like how far Maybe we think we are from something like that. Um, so <laughs> that's an interesting thing to think about because we've been trying to do that for a long time and it never goes <laughs> quite as well as it could or quite yeah. as well as we think it could. I actually just recently was looking through these old papers from the sixties about this language called Oak Treat, which was, just like you were describing, it was designed to be drag and drop, just point and click. And I I got a demo of it built and was trying it out and it was just awful because when you get to the, like down to the nitty gritty of programming, you have to be able to describe really complicated ideas really precisely. So a lot of times mm. if you're doing a drag and drop interface, you get to a point where it's like, okay, well, I have this box that has 12 lines going to it. And I need to click on the 11th line and then drag that to this other box. It also has 10 lines on it. And it just, mm. it breaks down as complexity balloons. And also the the mm. fun, awful thing with this language, Oak Tree, that I was working with is that it was really slow to program in because instead of just 
hammering away at a keyboard, you have to go look through some menus and find the right things and move it, find the right space to drop your little boxes into. So I think it's possible, but all our all our past attempts have pointed to failure so far. <laughs> so far, definitely. Yeah, I'm this. There's always like pros and cons to to certain things. So like yeah. increasing, I suppose, usability is is going to be at the at the uh, disadvantage of function and uh, trying to be as specific as possible with like referencing mm-hmm. stuff, which is and I which think is like building into a niche can help. I know when I was doing research mm. at the college, a lot of my my friends who did experimental stuff used LabVIEW, and they liked that. And that was a drag and drop language just for data acquisition and analysis. So it was able to be okay because it only did like one thing. But once you get to trying to do general purpose as a visual language, that it's definitely a bigger challenge to tackle. Yeah, for sure. I think. Yeah, it's 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 one of those. It's the history of of programs. Is yeah, if you are doing to wanting to do a, a, a very uh, predefined set of things, and it would be easy to to create um, interfaces that work. But as soon as you try to make it do something else, it's 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 not going to yeah. do that. It can, it can only do what you tell it to do. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so when I was looking at, like, when the first computer come out, I was like, 1800s, I was like, geez, that's that's going to be too far <laughs> back to look into the future. So I was thinking, okay, like, consumer computers, like, personal computers go back, what, four decades, right? Which is uh, yeah, give or take. A, a, a more, uh, it's, a, it's a period of time that you can think about, uh, I think in a more defined way than like a hundred years plus. So how do you think going in the next four decades, computing is going to look like, what are the major like milestones you think we're going to hit in that time? I think that's really hard to tell. One of, one of the things that I've learned on doing almost 80 episodes now of my podcast is computer (laughs) history is really unexpected. There's a lot of twists that mm. don't make a lot of sense. Like the IBM PC is a great example. IBM was building that because they they needed to make a little bit extra money while they were waiting for their next big release. And it ended up being the biggest thing in basically consumer history as far as computers go. IBM did not plan for that. And a lot of things that just catch people's imagination are totally unplanned and a lot of, conversely a lot of things that are planned to catch people's imagination just fall flat in the 70s xerox <laughs> yeah. basically yeah they built a full graphical user interface that <laughs> looks like a modern computer and just no one wanted it uh there were some people who were like hey that's cool and we're, we're gonna take some aspects of that but when xerox tried to sell it they sold like i think 10 computers or something everyone's like oh why would we want this what's a mouse what even is yeah, that yeah yeah um yeah. so I think somebody definitely we... lacked vision and marketing over there yeah <laughs> they had the tech down <laughs> <Perhaps>. <laughs> i think for trying to look for what's going to be the next big thing it has to be something 
similar to what happened with Xerox, something that people are overlooking now, which <laughs> that makes it a hard kind of search. Mm -hmm. I, I personally yeah. think that one of the bigger trends we'll see in the coming years for consumer technology is going to be more and more internet integration because we're, I think we're just starting to very clumsily use the internet at this point. I'm thinking of stuff like yeah. the internet of things, mm. egg trays that count how many eggs you have in your fridge. Um, <laughs> that's a real thing. They, they yeah. sell those online. So I, I think that's kind of emblematic of we're taking our first steps into figuring out what it means to have the internet everywhere. And we've been trying to grapple with what the internet really means since the seventies. So in the next four years, hopefully we'll have that figured out. I don't know what that'll look like, but I know that's going to be a big trend. Um, I'd say that that's probably the biggest to look out for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of agree. I think what's probably stopping that innovation is that not everybody in the world has access to internet to begin with yeah, and not point. at a speed where you could do a lot of a lot of things. I mean, even like in America, like there's a lot of rural places that have like, like modern internet connection. And in Africa, like Africa barely has electricity, never mind internet. Um, so yeah. it's one of those things when where the infrastructure has to come online. I think people will then realize um, just the possibilities that you can do with it. And I mean, there are companies out there who are trying to make it a, a possibility, like beaming internet from space and stuff. And yeah, I think we are like on the cusp of a lot of those like Star Trek technologies that are like, okay, one, like we're getting, we're getting to an idea of things going to be like really high tech and going forward. Yeah. Uh, but I also, yeah, that, I also think it's different. I also think, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's one of those things that, um, it's so difficult to say because it takes a turn of, of events and it doesn't it might not even matter with the technology but like like the 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 basic like materials that you would need like 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 metals like nickel and cobalt and stuff mm -hmm. if there's ever like a shortage or we run out of something that might totally change how we need to uh, the build the technology going forward and I mean, I'm already hearing about roadblocks uh, when it comes to basic materials. And I think the pandemic highlighted a lot of things and the the burgeoning, hopefully not World War III, is also highlighting a lot of things. Um, so it's going to yeah. be interesting. I think we started to also, as far as like the horizon like looks bright, I think we're also like coming across a lot of walls. Um, that we are crashing up into in terms of uh, just being able to, to get stuff done to progress technology. So yeah, I'm, I'm with, with you. Computing... It's probably impossible to say. Yeah, and with computing though, we are lucky that we found a lot of ways around a whole lot of walls in the past. So I think at least for the digital future, things will probably be bright. I know one of my favorite things to think about is back when computers used to use vacuum tubes during this transitionary period where transistors existed, but they were too expensive. There were 
a bunch of really exotic materials people were experimenting with to make vacuum tube replacements. Um, there's some great research that was done on using cryogenic uh, materials to replicate vacuum tubes in larger scale. So there's there's a whole lot of options. And I, I think especially when computer nerds are up against a wall, we tend to find really high, <laughs> yeah. high in the sky, far out there ways to get around it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is one of those things where you don't under you you kind of underestimate the the fact that like necessity is the mother of invention, and like when you really really need something, that's when you kind yeah. of invent uh, like something. And like yeah, most of us still has been working properly for the past few decades, and we are yet to actually run up to any real um, yeah any real thing that'll stop that. I mean, right now, really, the only real thing that might stop it is like World War Three, which hopefully, well, you know, we hope that does not happen. <laughs> hopefully, that doesn't stop. Um, it. And even in that case, even in that case, wars tend to advance technology, especially like on a military and computational yeah. level. I mean, um, circling back, ARPANET was developed because of World War Two and the Cold War. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Let's bring back to something more exciting, <laughs> less about war. Um, what are you looking forward to, like in the near future, like in the next couple of years? Like, what do you think is on the cusp of becoming reality that's that might change everyone's life, or at least make your life a bit better? Right. Right now, a lot of my friends and I are looking forward to a better online D and D platform. <laughs> That's something. Oh we've yeah. Been struggling <laughs> with on the, the very. What are you? What are you? What are you using level. now? Oh, we've been yeah. using Roll20 since yeah. the last couple of years, and that's works like 50% yeah. of the time. Um, yeah. Buddy and I have been trying to set it's, up a couple on, online different D&D options. Online D&D is, 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 is a difficult thing. It, it's almost it's impossible almost to replace that in person. Um, it, is. it is. Especially like now you can have like online calls like this, which is really nice. And you want to yeah. do this like five years ago like not to this like degree um yeah i use fancy grounds and it and it meets my my needs but it's the user interface is not that great <laughs> um there's like pros and cons foundry. yeah there's pros and cons i've heard i've heard things about foundry but i've just i just invested so much it's like one of those like lost uh lost cost fallacies fallacy. yeah 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 because so, like so i've bought all of my books on fancy grounds like and it's like thousands of rands hundreds of dollars <laughs> i'm kind of like locked in <laughs> although i think i would jump over if um D beyond starts up a virtual table because i do have some books there and they yeah i mean the way that they've better. The yeah, the interface is really good when it comes to like running your your character or, or reading uh, material. Um, it's it's nice to be able to read stuff like on a mobile phone app compared to like on a computer, which you like locked into with a computer program like Fancy Girls. So I don't know. So like yeah, what are what are you guys thinking about? Uh, just foundry or are there other things you're looking at right now? we we keep trying to get foundry to work for all our players but you have to self-host it on your own server so we have it oh, working wow, 
like once a week, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> once a week. <laughs> so we might Whoa, we might geez. be looking for another option soon. <laughs> That's very yeah. near future computer tech though. Yeah, definitely. There was a program that just came out on Steam. Um jeez, what is it called? But it basically allows you to like create a map by just like like dragging your mouse <laughs> across. It'll like use procedural so nice. generation. Yeah, yeah. procedural generation to like create a map for you. And yeah, one of my friends got me onto it. And like every time he tells me something, my, my wallet always just gets destroyed. And it looks so cool. Because <laughs> you could just like, like how you like on a like graphic software, like drag like a square. You could just do that and like a map will create and will populate with like furniture and everything. And like you can set like lighting. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> I used to spend hours like creating these maps and these other programs. And now it's like, you just use AI to do it for you. Um, oh, that does sound really nice. It's called Dungeon Alchemist or Dungeon Alchemy or something like that. Oh, I think I've heard um, that name before. Yeah. So it's yeah, D and D thankfully has has hit somewhat mainstream at least in that culture. So we're getting mm -hmm. new tech. Um, I think D and D Beyond was probably the, the start of it. Um, other. I think other tabletop, um, virtual tabletops have been around, but I think the pandemic kind of pushed a lot of these technologies yeah. um, when it comes to online communication and online gameplay, um, at least like in-person stuff. Because like the video game stuff has always been there. It's been there for a while. But um, virtual tabletops and Dungeons and Dragons is more akin to an online meeting than it is like an online game so oh you're making it sound boring now <laughs> <laughs> that, but that's what's nice about it compared to uh, to like just playing call of duty um it's a, it's yeah. a different it's a different type of experience um, yeah it's more so, social yeah, I'm, I'm with you i'm looking forward to new dnd tech it's gonna be i've seen some interesting things that i think are really cool what i want right now is to be able to have animated maps like like a video instead of just like a mm. static image i think that would be really cool um and i don't think it would be that difficult to do to pull off programming once i, I know like, like a GIF. yeah exactly Maybe. um so i don't know it's it's gonna i think depend on developer will and how much time and money it's gonna take uh, yeah. Yeah, to sure. in incorporate it yeah yeah, that is a that is a interesting outlook for sure, but I'm sure we could go for hours speculating about <laughs> new technologies. So, so Sean, why don't you let everyone know where they can find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, so my podcast is called Advent of Computing. It's on all major podcast apps. I try to do a good job of getting it available everywhere. Every time a new directory comes up. Uh, my website's adventofcomputing.com, which has links to all of my everything on it. And you can talk to me on Twitter at adventofcomp. For sure. Definitely go check the podcast out if you're interested in computer history, uh, which I think is really cool. So thanks so much for joining, Sean. It's been a fun chat, very enlightening. Yeah. And thanks I'm for sure having we'll, me on. We'll chat in the future as, as new interesting things come out. Yeah. Thanks so much and, and cheers. Thank you.